Carolyn and I have had a wonderful time with you all. I've said it to a few people. If I lived here, I would come to this church. I'd, uh, it's what a wonderful place. And I love the vision for discipleship and the ministries that are going on here. It's just wonderful and amazing. Now, let me pray before we jump into this. Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you would, through your word, bring encouragement to my brothers and sisters here in ways that I could not have personally planned. You know the needs. Your word is powerful to give us insight, to give us wisdom. Help me to use the time I have wisely and effectively. And I pray that Christ would be glorified and that his people would be encouraged. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, it was probably now it's been 25, 30 years ago I was preaching in the church I pastored for over 25 years in Southern California and I was I think in Ephesians and I was from Ephesians 6, 4 teaching about parenting and I concluded a sermon more or less saying when you when your kids grow up and they're out of the house and they're married then your job will be over and that shows how naive I was. And there was actually an older gentleman, he's a retired missionary named Elmer. And he came up to me and he put his arm around me and said, Jim, you will never stop being a parent. And that actually became the title of the book that uh, I ended up co-authoring about the topic later. And even as I looked at Elmer, I realized that's true, that I knew three of his adult kids pretty well. Actually, he had four adult kids. And I saw that when one of them who had a business was injured, that Elmer went across the country and ran the business for him. I saw when another family member was having trouble in their family situation, Elmer and his wife were getting involved. And uh, sure enough, it, parenting never ends. Uh, around that time, there was an article in our local newspaper about a lady who was celebrating her 105th birthday. And the article says she remains extremely close to her kids, 74 and 75. She says, well, they're not kids anymore, but they are to me. And now, Carolyn and I are parents of three young adults who are in their 30s. And Elmer's words were very wise, is that parenting may be more intense when your children are younger, but it actually gets a little more complicated sometimes when they grow older. And my observation, uh, I should explain that in addition to being a pastor for all these years, I've been involved in biblical counseling ministry, was helping to run a biblical counseling center in Southern California. Along with my pastoral ministry, I was seeing lots and lots of cases, different situations coming up. And what I observed is we had problems with parents coming in where they've got the 28-year-old son who's still sleeping in his bedroom and hasn't quite moved into adulthood yet. Or they've got their 21-year-old daughter who wants to get married to a guy that they don't like. And they come asking for advice. And I realized that the material on parenting is a bit pyramid-shaped, where stuff on parenting little kids, if you go, it used to be to a Christian bookstore, those don't much exist anymore, but if you were to go on Amazon for solid biblical books, you could find quite a few good books on parenting smaller children. There are a few pretty good books on teenagers. Actually, one of them I co-authored, which is called When Good Kids Make Bad Choices, which deals with rebellion in teenagers. Uh, also did one on the first category, kind of parenting is more than a formula. But when it came to parenting adult kids, from a biblical perspective, there was virtually nothing out there. And that's one reason that I worked with Elise Fitzpatrick on this book. 
And something that I've always affirmed as a pastor and a biblical counselor is the sufficiency of Scripture, that the Scripture equips us for every good work, which includes dealing with our adult kids. But what actually astounded me as we did the research for the book is how much of what the Bible says about parenting actually relates to parents with their adult kids. Uh, the most famous failed parent in the Bible is probably Eli, with David running a close second. And their failures really take place when their children are adults, not little toddlers. And, and so in the time this morning, I want to kind of survey things. You can never, in one hour or 45 minutes, summarize the entire contents of a book. But to hit some of the highlights that I hope will be most helpful for you, some parts in your outline I'll skip over more quickly than others, uh, just because of time. But the first question would be, how can you prepare your children for adulthood? And by the way, for those of you who are young enough that you, know, you, you don't have, even have kids yet, uh, there's actually one more book I have to make kind of the fourth in the series. I, I have in mind to write a book, Help, I'm an Adult and My Parents Are Driving Me Crazy. Um, and I've actually got a talk already built on that. They didn't ask me to give that one here for some reason, but um, some of this is going to relate to you in ways you may find encouraging uh, as well. That, and actually, part of the real challenge is that sometimes it's the parents who need to be prepared for their kids to become adults more than it's the kids who need to be prepared to become adults. Uh, the, the Bible says our job as parents is to equip our children to live wisely on their own. The marriage relationship is one that ends only by death, uh, ideally. But the parenting relationship is designed to be somewhat temporary in terms of the control you have over your children. And, and, you're, and it's not the government's job, it's not the church's job, it's your job to equip your children to live wisely in the world. The book of Proverbs begins with the fact that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And then the whole book of Proverbs is listen to your mother, listen to your father. The first nine chapters of Proverbs is a father pleading with his young adult son to uh, come out of his naivete, his indecision about life, and to commit himself to wisdom. The book of Proverbs teaches him how to live wisely in relationships with the opposite sex, money, uh, it, it, how to deal with his career, how to learn how to speak well, the kinds of friends he should have, how we should deal with various other kinds of temptations. And so our job is to equip our, our children to be able to live in the world on their own. And then part of it in terms of preparing the parent is we as parents have to be prepared for the day when we're going to have to relate to our children not as authority figures, but as adults. And that is very hard. I, th I think it's actually harder for Christian parents than for non-Christian parents. Non-Christian parents kind of let go sometimes. I, I felt like I was kind of a free-range kid from about the age of 12. And thankfully, God converted me not long after that, and the authority became the scripture in my elders to try to live wisely. But uh, we as Christian parents, we, we want to protect our children from the world, and we're most committed to you know, we, Christian schools, homeschools, family devotions, screen time limits, uh, standards of entertainment, and so we, we exercise a great deal of control. Of course, when you get the child, you have virtually total control. When they sleep, what they eat, where they go, what they do, uh, even as they get older, what friends they have, 
and sometimes it's a great challenge for Christians as they see their children, as their children are getting older, to begin to let go. And ideally, the letting go isn't something that happens, okay, I have total control over your life until you're 18, and on your 18th birthday, poof, no more. Ideally, there's a gradual opening of the hand as you give them opportunity to make more of their own decisions, and you're not hyper-controlling them. One of the biggest mistakes I see that Christian parents make is they treat their 23-year-old like they would treat a 13-year-old. And they expect absolute compliance. There have been seminars taught, which I previously have attended, thankfully not taught myself. Uh, you know, kind of saying parents have this absolute control until the child is married. And we're going to get into that in, in just a few moments. Um, that is unwise. And the irony is that your friends, your other family members, your friends at church, they see your kids are becoming adults. And, and you still see them as five-year-olds you know, walking around the house needing all kinds of, of guidance. Uh, Colossians and Ephesians 6 warned fathers not to exasperate their children or to provoke them to anger. And I think overly controlling parents who are not allowing their young adults to make more of their own decisions are exasperating their young adult children. Actually, one thing we did for the book is we did a survey of a good number of parents of adult kids and young adult kids, some Christian, some not, but from Christian families about relationships. And one way I've tried to put how I see this happening in real life would be that uh, you have this kind of ideal standard. You're like your young adult to live by. You'd like them to, you know, get up at 6.30 in the morning, have their devotions for a half an hour, uh, make breakfast for the family, get out the door in time to do their 40-hour week job where they're also taking 20 units at the uh, local university, working towards graduating in three years. You know, you've got all these ideals that they're listening to, you know, Christian music on their way to and from work. Uh, they're you know, only watching really, you know, G-rated movies. Or You've got all these ideals. And then you've got, you can't live here if you act this way, standards in, in the bottom. And we'll get to some of that as well. But then this area in the middle, which is really important as your kids are growing up and it's an expanding area, would be even though this is my ideal for you, that you as you get older are going to be making more of your own choices. In some cases, they're not going to be even choices I like. There's some choices if you make them, you can't live in my house anymore. But there's some choices where you probably already know what I would like for you to do here. But your friends, your entertainment standards, your sleeping schedule, uh, as you get older... I, as an adult, it's not my job to micromanage your life anymore. A uh, couple of the general things in terms of preparing them and preparing really us for adulthood is realizing that as they get older, your role becomes less about control and more about persuasion, that their engagement in the relationship with you, it, it, in a sense, becomes more voluntary. If they're adults, they can move out. If they're adults... Uh, they don't have to listen to you. It's, it's going to be a relationship that makes them want to listen to you. Uh, one, if you don't remember anything else I say, your adult children will probably thank me for saying this. And that would be, you know, if, if, ask yourself before you speak to your young adult, does she already know what I think about this? <laughs> and if the answer is yes, repetition becomes nagging. <laughs> And it's something that drives your young adult crazy. Their problem with their behavior, their beliefs, their attitudes is not that they are unaware of what you wish they were doing. Their problem right now is that 
you know, they're not with you on that. And nagging them is not going to improve the relationship. Uh, you know, our process of training children, this is part I'll skip over pretty quickly, is you know, we're trying to equip them for adult life. We're trying to make them ready. Uh, some children, we sense, leave home too soon. Sometimes they want absolute freedom before they're really ready. Ironically, a lot of young men, in order to be free of parental authority, join the military. <laughs> and some young women marry the guy that joined the military so that she doesn't have to be bossed around by her parents anymore. Uh, but there's sometimes I've seen where parents have been so controlling, often with anger, nagging, that I think young adults are escaping a really bad home situation where the parents may have had good intentions, but they've really driven the children out prematurely. Now, a, a question that I want to address that is a really important question is what authority do we as parents have over our adult children? Uh, children obey your parents, the scripture says, in, in various places. And the question is, does that word children mean like, I went to a seminar, actually, when I was a young Christian, where the guy teaching the seminar, a guy named Bill, uh, stood up and he said, basically, you are in abs absolute subjection to your parents until you're married. Genesis 2.24, for this cause a man leaves father and mother and is joined to his wife. And if you're 35 years old and you're not yet married, you are under your parents' authority and you can't do anything that they don't agree with. I think that is unbiblical. I think it's not only unbiblical, I think it destroys relationships between parents and children. Yes, I do agree that Genesis 2.24, that when a child gets married, your relationship with them changes, and now their primary family relationship is with their new spouse, and we need to respect that. But I also believe the Bible teaches that when our children grow to be adults, and, you know, in our culture, it's about 18. You could argue 20 from some places in the Bible. But as they come into adulthood, that they are no longer under absolute parental authority. And I've got a couple passages that I think bring this out. One would be John chapter 9. And this is the story of the man born blind. And Jesus uh, healed him. And so in verse... 18, the Jews did not believe him that he had been born blind and received sight until they called his parents of the very one who had received his sight. And they questioned them saying, is this your son who you say was born blind? Then how does he now see? And his parents answered and said, we know this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes? We do not know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. So there you can see a concept that even in, in that culture 2,000 years ago, there was an idea. Apparently this man born blind was single. For many reasons, that's a probable assumption. But his parents recognized now that he's a man, he's a man who speaks for himself. We no longer speak for him. There's an idea of being of age. An another passage is in Numbers chapter 32. And I have to set it up for you to understand what's going on here, but this is when the 12 spies went into the land and they spied out the land and 10 of them said, wow, this is impossible. We could never take this land. These guys are going to destroy us. 
I don't know what we're going to do. And then, of course, Joshua and Caleb had faith, and they said, no, we need to trust God and take the land. And as they presented it to the people, uh, the, the, the people went out, you know, followed the ten spies and not the two believing spies, the ten unbelieving spies. But here's the question. Okay, you're, you're 21 years old, and you're still living in the tent next to your parents. And when the spies come, the, the, the ten unbelieving spies you know, say, this is terrible, we'll never win. Your parents say, you know, those guys are right, we don't believe either. What should you do? Submit to your parents or follow Joshua and Caleb? Well, the answer is there in the Bible. And in verse 11, the Lord says, None of the men who came up from Egypt from 20 years old and upward shall see the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, for they did not follow me fully. Now, the implication of that would be those who were 20 years old and older could not blame their parents for having been in unbelief that those men were responsible. They were of age to have made their own decision, and if they followed their parents, they made the wrong decision, and they're responsible for that. Uh, another passage, I think, that would argue this way is in 1 Corinthians 7, where it describes the, the life and ministry of a single person, and Paul is encouraging uh, a person to you know, consider the life of singleness that he has. And he says, verse 32 of 1 Corinthians 7, I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. And then the one who is married is concerned about pleasing his spouse. But the principle is singleness as an adult is not to stay with your parents for the rest of your life and follow them. Singleness as an adult was to serve God and your parents may not have even been believers. And so there's an acknowledgement in your singleness. Now you're living the life to which God has called you, not necessarily the life of your parents. Now, I'll, I'll tell you an actual true story that I, we had a man in our congregation, uh, now it's been 15, 20 years ago, named Jorge. I'll call him Jorge. And Jorge is, was living with his mother and his father had divorced his mother many years ago. He had a brother who was, I think, older, who had gotten married and left. And so Jorge really had been living with his mother, just the two of them, for over 20 years. Of course, he's 40, over 40 years old, but it's just been the two of them living together. Well, Jorge came to me because Jorge was in love. And he wanted to get married, but his problem was his mother doesn't want him to marry, especially this girl. And he brought the, and the mother was saying, Exodus 20, children, you know, obey your parents. That's the fifth commandment. You must obey me. I will not let you marry. And Jorge came to me and asked my advice. And I tried to prove to him like I've tried to prove to you. You are an adult. And your mother does not have authority to tell you at the age of over 40 years who to marry or do you have to continue to live with her until she dies. And he introduced me to the young lady. And this young lady, and it turned out they had been seeing each other for several years. She was over 30. And she was amazing and godly. The only thing wrong with her as far as I was concerned is she was putting up with Ore. <laughs> um, but we actually helped him to see from Scripture that as an adult, his mother no longer had authority. We should respect our parents we should honor them, we should seek their advice, 
We should provide for them if they're in desperate need, Jesus teaches, but we don't have absolute authority. When, when our, and that's for you as young adults. Uh, as a young adult, you are now responsible primarily to God for the choices you make. Your parents are a source of wisdom, but it's no longer about control. But then we move on to the next part of this, is would be when a, an adult child is still living with his parents under their roof, or they're paying for the roof you're living under at university or wherever else, the situation becomes a little bit more complicated. And there's been a phenomenon that's really multiplied in the last about 15 years. There was an article in Time Magazine many years ago. It was about what they called the Twixters, meaning between uh, childhood and adulthood. And it was describing how in the range of like 18 to 30 years of age, far more young adults were still living with their parents, dependent upon their parents, and it's like this new sociological phenomenon. And interestingly, I've given this talk in several different countries, and it's not just in the United States. It's all over the place this is happening, even in developing countries. Uh, Latin America, Africa, it's, it's been incredible. Uh, some call it the Peter Pan syndrome. They just don't want to grow up. Uh, the, the British call them kippers, kids in parents' pockets eroding retirement savings. Um, <laughs> And uh, the Germans call them nesthockers, which is nest squatters. Um, boomerang kids is the Australian term. You throw them out and they keep coming back. Um, now, there are valid reasons for a young adult to live with his parents. Uh, if a young adult is completing his or her education and you're saving money by living at home or you're establishing a business, learning a trade, uh, that, that's fine, or you know, a daughter especially, it could be a son, just want to stay under the care and protection voluntarily of her staying there with her parents, hoping that one day uh, marriage will come. Uh, there are some young adults also who are not physically and mentally able to take care of themselves. There are uh, three million children in the United States who have disabilities who are living with their parents, and I'm sure you have some like that in your church. Uh, sometimes it's the parents who need help as they're dealing with disabilities and the children choose to stay to help out. Sometimes there are extraordinary circumstances. Uh, 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 the husband is in the military, he's killed in action, and the wife and maybe her children move back with the parents for a time uh, of, of resettling life or you know, people have lost jobs and they're temporarily living with family. Uh, I would then, even the Genesis 2.24, leave father and mother thing, I would not advise a couple for a very long time to live with their parents because what happens is they revert to your childhood after a not a very long time and it becomes kind of awkward. The, my point would not be that parents should not allow their young adults to live at home. My point is there should be a goal. There should be a purpose. And what often happens is just kind of, it's, it's done without deliberate intent or a plan and it just slides into something and it's going nowhere. I, I love Proverbs 21.5, the plans of the diligent lead to advantage. The one who is hasty comes to poverty. And so what's the plan here? And the problem that's occurring, in, including in many Christians' homes, and that's actually one of the main two sources of counseling problems that led to our writing the book, was all these couples coming in with the 25-year-old son who is still living in his room and he's working part-time and he's going to school part-time but still hasn't quite finished community college yet 
and he really hasn't quite figured out what he's going to do with his life. Uh, Proverbs 28, 19, he who tills his land will have plenty of food, but he who follows empty pursuits will have poverty in plenty. And for some of us boomers, uh, it's kind of hard for us to comprehend. I mean, I, when I was in high school, I wanted to go to college, get a job, get married, and become an adult. And it's kind of perplexing to me that you see people who are the age that I was when I was having kids, and they don't want to become adults. They don't want to move ahead in life. Um, and oftentimes there's this expectation that parents will take care of their needs. You know, Second Thessalonians 3 says, if someone will not work, neither shall he eat. The proverb says in 1626, a worker's appetite works for him for his hunger urges him on. I've seen young adults living at home be irresponsible financially and, and getting into great debt. Of course, another factor is, is that uh, this is actually something I read in an article that sometimes these young adults living at home, because they don't have to pay rent, utilities, sometimes even food or car insurance, they actually have more disposable income than their parents do. By, you know, they're working part-time at Starbucks and they can eat out more often, they can go on nicer vacations, have fancier phones and electronic gizmos because they're not paying a mortgage or rent or utilities. Um, and marketing people have recognized that. Um, and then perhaps most troubling is that instead of getting married, having a family, they're indulging in uncommitted uh, fornication or indulging in pornography rather than fulfilling the, the desires to deal with loneliness and sexual desire the way that God has designed. Uh, they're postponing marriage, and then when they finally do get marriage, they're bringing in a lot of baggage. Uh, actually, there was an article in Kiplinger's magazine saying statistics would show that a man who is married makes over 25% more than a man who is single. And that's not due to discrimination. I think the, the premise would be there's a motivation. And actually, we've seen this. We have a son who recently got married, had a baby, and he's a lot more serious about earning income than he ever has been in his entire life. Uh, taking on those responsibilities. But parents often are guilty of contributing to the problem as you know, they may have failed to really emphasize getting their children ready to be on their own, or they can be guilty of financing and enabling the sinful behavior, uh, bailing them out of debt, paying for their stuff, allowing themselves to be manipulated. And really, the, the problem would be because of sin, if you can have an upper middle class lifestyle while being a sluggard, what's going to motivate you to stop being a sluggard? Uh, the proverb says, poor is he who works with a negligent hand. Do not love sleep or you will become poor. But uh, for a young adult who is not seeking the Lord, uh, they're, they're living the good life. What's going to force them to change? And then my Probably the most important verse you may hear today for parenting adult kids is in 1 Samuel 2, and it's verse 29, and this is the context of Eli. Remember Eli, I said, probably the most famous failed parent in the Bible, and Eli has these wicked sons. They're adults. They're getting drunk, and they're being sexually immoral in the context of their priestly function under Eli's authority. And, and the reason they're still under Eli's authority would be uh, Eli is the chief of the 
religious functions of the community, and he's letting his sons serve under him, and they are corrupting worship, blaspheming, doing all kinds of wicked things. And Eli's failure with his adult children is he's enabling their wickedness rather than stopping it. And in 1 Samuel 2.29, it's when the Lord has sent a prophet to, to warn Eli. And by the way, just to pause, it's not that Eli had done nothing. Eli had been whining at his sons like many parents do. And uh, he says in verse 24, 1 Samuel 2, Oh, my sons, the report I hear is not good. Uh, the, what I hear the Lord's people circulating. And so he, he's, he's nagging them. But his nagging has no teeth, right? Oh, this is terrible. And again, it reminds me of what I so often see with parents of irresponsible young adults. They're living in the house. They're irresponsible and rude. They're not getting anywhere in life. And you know, the mom nags you. I, it just makes me so upset when you stay up so late and you don't have a job and you're not getting anywhere in school. And blah, 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 blah. But then you get to verse 29 where the Lord declares to the prophet, why do you kick at my sacrifice and my offering, which I've commanded in my dwelling, and honor your sons above me by making yourselves fat with the choicest of every offering of my people Israel? You see, what, what was the motivation of their sin is Eli, and the, the Hebrew word is like to treat as weighty. He treated his sons as more weighty than God. And that is the great temptation of parents of adult children is we're tempted to sacrifice what is pleasing to God and what is right in order to maintain peace with our young adult children who are living in a very sinful way. We don't want to have to confront them and create all the conflict that could thereby result. Um, now again, even when the, I'm not saying go home and kick them all out this afternoon, okay? Some of you probably have good situations and there may be some adjustments that you need to make. And even if your children are doing fairly well, there are challenges of being at home. And again, sometimes it's on your side. We have a hard time, even if our kids are doing well, at treating them with, as the adults they are and, and recognizing that. But it also could be challenging for them. On the one hand, they're adults, but they're still under your roof. And actually, one thing... They made it understand is any place you live, they're going to have expectations. If you go move, and if you have a roommate someday, there's going to be expectation. You pay your half of the rent. You don't leave your stuff all over the place. You don't eat my food. You know, any place you live will have expectations. But I think it's harder for them to deal with that in the home. So what can you do? Um, in some cases, things are going fine. Just make your expectations clear. Keep going. In other cases, if, if things are not going as well as they should, some parents have gone to a written contract just to say, here is, okay, you're 22 years old, you're still living in the house, we love you, and we want to make your time here great, but then here's what's expected on, on both sides. And I've got some of those things listed in, in the book and in your outline. Very important would be to expect them to take financial responsibility. You need to pay for your own stuff. I've seen many situations where the young adult is very clever at manipulating the parent, like, uh, my car insurance is due, and I don't have any money to pay for the car insurance, and I know you want me to go to school and go to work, and I can't go to school and go to work unless I pay for the car insurance. And, well, I guess mom better pay for the car insurance. She's got the money. Well, it's not the fact that 
he's hardly worked at all. What money he spent, he spent frivolously. So, of course, he's out of money. He's acted foolishly. And then we would wrongfully be tempted to bail them out. And perhaps no more important expectation, in my view, would be than this one. That is, do not allow them to be lazy while living under your roof. Um, poor is he who works with a negligent hand. And that the, the point being that you're an adult, and if you want to live in our home, the condition of living here is you have to work as hard as the other adults living here. Does that sound reasonable? That, you know, for you, you think of yourself as, as a parent. How, how many hours a week do you have to work in order to pay the mortgage, pay the utilities, buy the food? It's not just 40, right? 40 may be the hours you're expected to be at work. It takes you 30 or 40 minutes each way to get to work. And then you get home and you don't have to work anymore, right? <laughs> yeah, that's meant to be funny. Then there's laundry and lawn mowing and maintenance and all kinds of other things. So I would say at a bare minimum, an adult is typically working over 50 hours a week. Okay, so if you're going to live here working 10 hours a week at Starbucks, being in class six hours a week and studying four hours a week is not going to cut it if there are then 60 hours of video games and 30 hours of movie watching and a little bit of sleep here and there that you have to prove to me as a condition of living here that you are, and it could be serving in the church if we agree to that, it can be education, it can be a job, it can be vocational training, but you have to be productive for as many hours as the rest of us are. And if you don't want to do that, you are making the decision to leave, not me. I'm saying if you want to live here, this is what you do. And you're saying, I'm not going to do it, then then you're telling me, I don't want to live here anymore, and it's going to be hard, but I can deal with that. Sexual purity. Uh, obviously, if you're going to live here, you know, even if you're not a believer, you're going to live by our standards. You're not bringing your girlfriend, your boyfriend over into your room with the door closed. You're, you know, and quite frankly, I'm not going to police you. I'm not going to put a tracker on you. But if you want to shack up with your girlfriend, boyfriend, have the integrity to move out and have your own place. That, that would grieve us. But don't misuse our home in that way. Obviously, substance abuse if there have been problems in the past with substance abuse, uh, drug testing uh, might be necessary. When a child has had problem with this in the past, sometimes uh, your house becomes kind of a halfway house, if you can understand what I mean by that. And again, and this is where you say that, okay, you've had this problem, you want to come home, but the condition of coming home is that we are going to implement rules to try to help you, even if you're not a believer, but at least in common grace, to get your life together. Unbelievers keep jobs and don't get drunk every day. You can do that. We will help you. But a condition of living here is you meet certain expectations. And if you don't want to meet our expectations, then you're free to go find a better deal. But we're not obligated to have you here on your terms. And then, and this is perhaps sometimes the most, one of the most challenging elements, and that is that if they don't meet expectations, you need to be willing to make them pay a price for their irresponsibility. And this is probably my second most important verse on parenting adult kids, and it's Proverbs 26, verse 3. And it says, A whip is for the horse, a bridle for a donkey, and a rod for the back of fools. So why do I love that verse for adult kids? Well, if your child is wise, they will pursue wisdom on their own. They're going to pursue 
working hard, getting trained to have a vocation, becoming a godly person, getting married, moving on with adult life. If your child is foolish, they're not going to do the right thing out of their heart. Uh, fools need other motivation. It's just like smaller children. They're not going to be motivated by a desire to do what's right. What's going to motivate them? And, it's, and the illustration of the donkey is very vivid, right? If you want the donkey to pull the cart up the hill, if you just go, Mr. Donkey, would you please pull the cart up the hill? It makes me so sad when you don't do what, you want me, what I want you to do. I lie awake at night crying because you don't do the things I want you to do. Does Mr. Donkey care if he's a fool? Nor does your young adult child in some cases. If he was wise, those words would appeal to him. But if he's foolish, what does he understand? He understands pain. Now, you can't spank a 25-year-old. But, you, I mean, the ultimate thing is you cannot live here anymore. There are other intermediate things you can do. And I'll just give you illustratively one example. As I had a friend uh, came to me for counsel. He was having a lot of conflict with a son who was about 21 years old. In this case, the son was working hard in school, he had a job, he was an entrepreneur, a lot of good things about the son, but he was very, maybe like a lot of driven people, very discourteous. And so uh, the son would, my, my friend was one of these guys like goes to bed at 9 p.m. and gets up at 5 or something, and the son would come banging in at 1 a.m. and, you know, just rattling around the house, um, waking up my friend and his wife, and then my friend would come downstairs in the morning and sometimes the lights would all be on and in California electricity is four times more than it is everywhere else so that was real you know it's not pennies but nickels dripping out of the ceiling when that happens and uh, the door would sometimes be unlocked and my friend would get really angry and he'd go and wake up the kid who's you know whatever 6 a.m. just been asleep for a few hours and they would not have a pleasant encounter and my advice to him was rather than scolding him and having these confrontations, just say, okay, here's the deal, that if I come downstairs and the lights are on, it's 10 bucks. If the door is unlocked, it's 50 bucks. If you wake me up, if you make so much noise you wake me up, it's 20 bucks. And no more yelling, just that's the deal. That's the condition of living here. Now, if your child has no money, this particular plan won't work. In this case, the kid had money, and he loves money. Guess how much money my friend collected? No money. Um, so, a few other things I want to cover briefly. Uh, one would be, well, whose fault is it when your adult kids go bad? And I've been around here long enough to know. I mean, some of us have dealt with young adult kids who are unbelievers. Some of us have adult, dealt with young adult kids who have gotten in trouble with the law, substance abuse. Um, very, very hard things, suicide attempts, immorality, homosexuality. Well, my understanding is the Bible teaches that there are at least three factors, influences on children. One is, we know the Bible teaches that we are responsible to train our children according to the scriptures. But when Proverbs says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it, that is a statement of wisdom, not an absolute and unconditional promise. The nature of Proverbs, they are maxims, is the term. And so, for example, the hand of the diligent makes rich, and the one who is lazy will come to poverty. Is that a true statement of wisdom? Yes. Is it an absolute promise? No. Sluggards sometimes win the lottery, 
And sometimes diligent people have famine, earthquake, hurricane, wipe out their stuff. But it's a general principle of wisdom. So yes, we are responsible to discipline them, to instruct them, not to provoke them to anger. But the Bible also teaches that our children are responsible for the choices they make. That's the whole book of Proverbs. The whole book of Proverbs is, is wisdom crying out to the young, naive person, the young adult who is undecided about life. And wisdom is one voice appealing to him to choose God's way, to choose the fear of God and all that goes along with that. But there's Madame Folly as well. And, and she's also making an appeal. And actually, the climax of the first nine chapters of Proverbs, which are these extended discourses, is when Lady Wisdom has a banquet at the beginning of chapter nine, says, come eat with me. And at the end of chapter nine, Madame Folly has a banquet. She says, no, come eat with me. And the young person has, you only can eat one place. And the point is, I as a father cannot force my 25-year-old to eat with Lady Wisdom. I can beg him to choose that, but I can't make him do it. And the reality is, actually, Solomon's son was Rehoboam. And he went to dine with Madame Folly, and Solomon himself joined Rehoboam, you might add. Um, the, throughout the scriptures, you've had godly people who've had sometimes ungodly children. In the very first family, you have Cain and Abel, right? And I believe Adam and Eve were believers. I believe that they tried to teach their children the right way. Uh, Abel honors the Lord. Cain is a murderer. You know, what's the difference between those two guys? They were raised in the same family. They didn't have bad neighbors to mess them up, right? They didn't have internet and all these other things. All Cain had was the wickedness of his own heart. And so both were presented the same upbringing, same environment. One chooses righteousness, the other chooses folly. And that's been happening for several thousand years since then as well in believing families. And I know it's happened to some of us as well, including my own. Um, and so uh, we need to be wise. And I'm going to just reference a couple of things. I won't have time to read them carefully, but in Ezekiel 18, you have a fascinating sequence of three generations where it describes in verse 5, beginning of verse 5, a righteous man who practices justice and righteousness. And it describes how he keeps the law. He does the things the law requires. He doesn't do the things the law forbids. But then it says in verse 10, that righteous man has a violent son. And that son does all these wicked things that the father didn't do and doesn't do any of the righteous things. Why is that? Well, it's not the father's fault. That son chose to reject the godliness of his own father. And then amazingly, there's a third generation and the wicked son has a son. In verse 14, behold, he has a son who has observed all his father's sins and observing does not do likewise. He rebels against his wicked son by turning to the Lord and doing what's right. And so in the third generation, in, in spite of the wicked example of the father, and, and, and this is what continues to happen. I, I'm comforted by the fact that God himself knows what it's like to have rebellious kids. He is a perfect father. Israel in the Old Testament is called his son. Isaiah chapter 1 verse 2, he says, Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. And so we as parents are responsible, but even if we're faithful, we'll never be perfect, but even if we're faithful, our children will make a choice. And they're going to hear the voice of folly. We're trying to be to them the voice of wisdom, but they're going to hear both voices and then they're going to decide. And for you young people, being in a Christian family will not save you. Your parents cannot save you. They, and they're going to imperfectly try to point you to Christ, point you to wisdom. 
but the world is going to try to pull you away and tell you your parents are weird and that you ought, you ought to be normal like everybody else. And then you're going to decide. And what you decide will be your decision that your parents can't control. And the consequences will be yours one way or the other. Which then gets us to the point that ultimately we are dependent upon the grace of God. Uh, Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Jesus in Luke 12 describes how the gospel will divide families. He says, do not suppose that I've come to grant peace on earth, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, five members in one household be divided, three against two, two against three. They will be divided father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Jesus told us in the same family, in spite of the faithfulness of godly parents and siblings and friends and children, there will be some who reject us because they reject the gospel, and there will be division. And many of us are experiencing that, and, and it's heartbreaking and it's hard. But we're dependent upon God's grace. He must do what we cannot do. You can't save your kids. I, I want to make a further application of that passage briefly. I, I, I knew I wouldn't be able to get everything in the outline, but a couple of really important things I want to say in the time that I have left. Right now, one of the really tough issues being thrown at parents is we've had parents and grandparents having to deal with a young person who comes out and saying, I'm homosexual, I'm, I'm gay, or I'm a girl in a boy's body, or vice versa. And they want you to accept them as that. And they want you to embrace their ideology. And I want to tell you, first of all, that we as parents should take a position that there's nothing you could ever do that would stop me from loving you. There's nothing you could do that would make me stop having a relationship with you. For that matter, I'll try to be nice to the... And this, this also would apply if your child is living in fornication, cohabiting and not married with someone of the opposite sex, or they're marrying somebody you don't like. You've got all these different scenarios. Uh, a couple things to say about that. First of all, that when your child is acting immorally in some way, the problem is not so much with their morality... And it's not going to be changed by them marrying someone of the opposite sex instead of the same sex or whatever. What they need is a new heart. What they need, their problem is not their immorality. Their problem is their lostness. And the only thing that's really going to solve the problem is for them to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, you know, 1 Corinthians 6 says, such were some of you. People will come out of homosexuality and fornication and adultery and drunkenness and all these things. And so if your child is going into this, the problem, it's not the problem of biology. It's not the problem of how they were raised. Uh, all these sins are reflective of an unbelieving heart that's pursuing satisfaction in the world in various manifestations. And so what they need is salvation. And if, you know, just to say, well, if they would instead shack up, you know, with someone of the opposite sex or the same sex, or if they get married, that will not solve the ultimate problem. That's not what we should be yearning for. We yearn for their salvation, and we keep loving them as best we can. But sometimes, many parents and grandparents are being put in a position where, uh, you know, you're, I talked to a couple in Charlotte where their granddaughter is off at school, and she introduces her grandparents to her girlfriend, whom she wants to marry. And the grandparents can be nice, but sometimes that's not enough. They want absolute and total surrender. You must, 
embrace that I'm getting married. You must come to the wedding. You must accept that it's a marriage or you must accept, you know, for the person who says they're transgender, you must now call me by my new girl name and you must accept I was born this way. And see, this is where we must honor God above our children even. That we, again, I'm not saying don't, don't love them anymore. I'm saying that you love them but you can't surrender to their worldview, which is contrary to the Word of God. And there will be cases for some of us where our children are unbelieving and they're living a lifestyle we know is unbiblical, and they'll know where we're coming from and they'll want to have a relationship with us, and we should be thankful for that. You know, like we've had a son who's been living for over 10 years with the same woman. They know we don't think that's the way to go. We're kind to both of them, and they have a relationship. We're thankful. But I know of other people where, again, if, if you don't come to the wedding of these two women or if you don't agree with the worldview, and sometimes it's not even, sometimes it's your kids think you're nuts just for not agreeing, even if they're not the ones doing it. Some, there are going to be cases where estrangement cannot be avoided because the, the culture is demanding of us right now absolute and total surrender. Not tolerance, but celebration of evil. And there will be times, because for myself, I can't go to a homosexual wedding because it's not a marriage. It's, a, it's an act of rebellion against God. Now, if you've chosen to do that, that's between you and the Lord. But I'm just saying, that's going to be, as the culture becomes more and more post-Christian and anti-Christian, some of us are going to experience the division that Jesus described in Luke chapter 12. And it's going to be hard. Um, just a couple more things before I close. Uh, I didn't go into detail on the situation of, of marriage. I implied it to the story of Jorge that my understanding in marriage is I agree the ideal situation would be that your virgin Christian daughter marries a virgin Christian guy who's in your church. They've been friends with a pure relationship for 10 years. Uh, they're going to live in your neighborhood. You're going to help raise your grandkids. You've got this, you know, this wonderful wedding, everybody's happy and celebrating. Not many of us get that dream right now. If you get it, I'm happy for you, and some of you have. Um, but I would encourage in these matters again to recognize that you cannot control, I don't think God is all, there's people say, well, I have the right to determine who my daughter marries or my son marries. It's in the book, it's in the notes. I gave a bit in the case of Jorge. I don't think you have the right to do that biblically. I think you know, I have a friend who said, I can live near anybody you can live with to their kids. You know, you, you, your children are going to make those choices, and you can't control those choices. And even if you say, but I put a promise ring on your finger when you were 12, so therefore you can't marry this guy. I'm sorry, she's 25, and she's not going to find herself bound by that promise. Your, your influence over this is going to depend on your relationship with your child, not trying to exercise control. If you have a loving, trusting relationship, they'll listen to you. And I've seen cases where parents have rescued their young adult children from terrible marriage situations, um, but it's because they had a, a relationship of trust and respect and it's persuasion, not control. Um, sometimes parents, I've encouraged parents, you go to the wedding because this is going to affect your relationship with your daughter and with your grandchildren for the rest of your life. Now, there are some weddings maybe you can in good conscience go to, but if it's not your ideal and it's not your dream, do everything you can to love and have a relationship with them, as hard as sometimes that may be. Um, 
I want to tell just one last story to conclude, and that would be that you know, with our children, they all professed faith when they were teenagers. Um, one when he was probably 19, one when he was 17, and one when he was 26 turned away from the faith as we understand it. It's been very hard for us. But God has done good in our lives in spite of that. One is we're thankful we have a relationship with each of them. God is, actually, I'll say that the Bible I taught the men last night tells us husbands love your wives as Christ loves the church. I've found Caroline really easy to live, to love these last 40 years. I've had it, I've not had to sense a lot of sacrifice in that relationship. But loving wayward sons has taught me to love in an unconditional and sacrificial way I never had to do in marriage. And that shows me some of God's love for me. It's taught me to have compassion upon people who are suffering, not just this, but many other things. And God, in spite of the hardship of this, has even blessed us. And just one brief story, and this is to encourage you to keep loving and to keep trying, that our youngest son um, turned pretty sharply away from us and the faith when he was in his mid-teens. And we went, we can't even remember the exact time, but we would have conversations with him, and then we, you know, we were apart over the phone. We'd say, I love you. And we, it was either 10 to 15 years, he never said, I love you back. And it was a year ago, well, two years ago now, when he called to tell us he had become engaged. And at the end of the conversation, Caroline said, we love you. And he said, I love you too, Mom. And now for the last two years, he's been saying that every single time. And actually, when Caroline was there last month, he said, I apologize. he apologized for all the years he never said, I love you. God wants us to persevere in love for our children, even if they're wayward, because he persevered in love for us. Yet we also need to live wisely. The word of God is sufficient. You never stop being a parent, but you never stop loving. And the word of God gives us wisdom to deal with sometimes very complicated and difficult situations. And in these, we want to honor him. We pray that God will use our faithfulness for their good. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the scriptures which are infallible and sufficient. We thank you that there's wisdom in dealing with situations that to us seem new, but they're as old as the patriarchs. Lord, you know the needs of the families here. Minister to them by your spirit, through your word. Prepare us also to worship in the time to come. And then we pray, O oh God, that we would be able to rejoice at hearing of many prodigals who would come home. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.